Welcome to the Paranormal Pendle podcast, coming to you from the heart of Pendle Witch Country in the northwest of England. My name is Craig Bryant, author, investigator, and collector of stories. Join me as we take a journey into the paranormal, UFO sightings, cryptozoology, and big cats. This is the Paranormal Pendle podcast. Okay, so uh, welcome to episode 45 of Paranormal Pendle, uh, broadcasting to the Paranormal UK network at paukradio.com. Uh, now for this episode, um, if you're watching this on YouTube, we're actually live, we're on video. Well, we're not live, but we're doing a, we're actually doing a visual recording for a change. It's not something that, uh, that I normally do, but it's been requested by uh, some of my YouTube followers, which is, uh, which is great. Um, so yeah, um, welcome to my guest, as you can see, uh, Mark Holly. Mark, welcome. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> Delighted to have you. Um, I'm really interested to chat to you about um, your book, actually, that's uh, that you just released. Um, you're called Europe's Roswell. But before we get into that, can you uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, this is the bit I don't like doing because it's embarrassing. I've done loads. I've done tons of stuff. Um, I've done television. I did a series for ITV called Lost Treasures. Uh, I've got nine books out in all, um, in total, which you can go find on Amazon. Um, the last thing I did, I think, was Ancient Aliens. I was on the season uh, 19 last year. Um, so there's that. Um, I am also in a band. I play drums in a rock band. So, uh, you know, you might get to see me out on the musical circuit occasionally. Uh, and I've been doing it for a long time. That's all I can say. Um, professionally archaeologist. I, I always go under the writer, presenter, archaeologist label because that is basically uh, what I do. I guess if folks really want to know more, they could just, you know, type me into YouTube and uh, and see what little horrors they can find out there because I'm all over the place. Uh, but yeah, that's basically me. What's your um, what's your speciality then in archaeology? What what's your sort of period? Ooh, um, well, I, I rose to the dizzy heights of site director, whatever that means. It, you know, it, you get to sort of point at things and send people around and organise stuff and and all of that side of it. So uh, as a site director, you don't get to do very much dirt archaeology. And as I've got older, I mean, I'm, I'm far too old now to be digging in trenches up to my knees in mud. You know, that's not something I'd particularly relish doing now. Um, but it's great ordering the youngsters in there and getting them to dig stuff up. So, yeah, um, I never really got any higher than site director because I, I got sort of suckered into the world of television uh-huh. back in the heady days of Time Team and all that. Like I say, I had this... Lost Treasures, 22 episodes over five years for ITV Granada, uh, which got shown on Sky. And uh, trust me, if you ever do TV like that, it just takes over your life. Mm. You know, that's it. Um, But there was, you know, people see that and, you know, they see the whatever 10, 11 hours of TV footage we produced. And at the end of the day, there's, you know, 20 years of field archaeology and stuff and experience that's gone into that. So it does take a lot to produce, you know, um, especially something as fast moving as that. Yeah. So um, I've not really been down a hole recently, not since lockdown, but I was still down there digging and, you know, I still research, find stuff, write books. Mm. I must have 10 million reports I need to write up, you know. 
So what 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 sort of period do you like really get excited about then? What what sort of historical period do you get excited about? Well, well, for most of the time I did archaeology, it was the Celts. I right. was really keen on the Celts, mainly because there are so many Romanists out there. Everybody's into the Romans, and I thought, well, what about the poor fellows the Romans are invading? You know, what about everybody else? You know, so I kind of went off and did that. But then the Celts kind of feed into you know the Arthurian period because. Uh, book before this one was King Arthur, the Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph and Arthur. So that was all about that sort of end of the Celtic period. Uh, and then I kind of developed into early medieval and I sort of I stopped uh, just after the nasty Normans and the Crusades. I kind of stopped at the Knights Templar. Right. Uh, so for 12 years, we were doing reenactment events, you know, costumed and all kind of dressed up in the gear. And right. the last one of those we did in 2019. So we did that for 12 years as well. It's amazing. I did that as a hobby and I think it was more successful than my archaeology. <laughs> Well, no, I mean it's it's a fascinating. Uh, it is a fascinating subject, and cer certainly, um, I mean, I'm really fascinated by medieval uh, medieval history. Um, my wife is a history teacher. Those those people who who follow um, have followed the podcast for a while and listened to some interviews I've had with other people will know that that Sarah is a history teacher. She um, doesn't tend to do very old stuff it's more sort of modern stuff really but she still has an interest and and we are both very much into genealogy um we're both very much into family trees and um on my side of the family on my mum's side of the family i can actually follow um a line which goes back to some landowners in yorkshire um much to my dismay being a lancastrian um but we can actually follow it all the way back to um John of Gaunt and then obviously through him we go back through several kings all the way back to um William the Conqueror so that was quite interesting to to do that I mean obviously you know that's only on a on a sort of amateur level um for myself but um but yeah that that was quite interesting I was going to say I might I might be able to pop your head with a bit of trivia there because uh, <laughs> I I there was there was this thing uh, where, <laughs> there was there was there was this thing when uh, when we were doing lost treasures because everyone was convinced I was a Viking right. so there was like money changing hands you know as to whether I was or not and we had Professor Stephen Harding with us who did Blood of the Vikings so he was part of the team so right in the last season they had to test me uh, and when they tested me they found out that I was anything but Viking I am categorically a central european celt that's right. what i am wow. but that sent me off on one of these like you say genealogical yeah. you know genealogical journeys and uh, tracing the dna and I, I managed to get it back you ready for this um. akhenaten's dynasty in egypt i've got 65% of the same dna that akhenaten and tutankhamun have so uh, and and that can be supported by one of the medieval legends yeah. of scotia or Scotia that came all the way to Southern Ireland in the early medieval period. Wow. So it looks like that's where I, I come from. I'm sort of Northern Italy down to Egypt, across to Spain, yeah. into Southern Ireland, up through Ireland, and then across into Scotland and down to Macclesfield. We finished <laughs> up as we finished up as the medieval Lords of Macclesfield. That's where wow. we were. Um, we looked after looked after the Black Prince's war horse, which was the equivalent yeah. to his his Porsche 911 back then. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, it's it's quite funny. I actually went I went to Lancaster Castle to um, to have a bit of a look around because, I, I, strangely enough, I've I've never been. 
And one of the, I was telling one of the guys, and he said, "Oh, he said you and about seven million other people are all descended from John Gaunt. So don't don't think yeah. that's special, you know." But no, I, mean, I do, <laughs> I, I do, I do think it's nice when you when you can actually see it, even though you know you're not that that particularly unique. Um, you know, you can still see that that line and who married who and and so on, which um, which is interesting. Talking about DNA, I actually yeah. did my DNA quite quite a while ago. Um, and we will get to your book in a minute, by the way. But I think oh, that's all right. No it's worries. Really interesting. <laughs> um, I actually did my DNA quite a few years ago, and um, my DNA group is something like only about two percent. The haplogroup group that I joined, uh, that, that I'm part of, is only about two percent of the the population of the British Isles. So that the, the genetic markers that I have are, are actually quite quite rare. Um, and my ancestors going, I, I think they followed them back about fifty thousand years, back to uh, the Balkans. So that's where this this particular group that I'm um, I'm I'm part of genetically came from and and came across through central europe and, oh, yeah. and southern europe so you know sort of through italy and spain and then again up um up into the into the british Isles. so you, you, you never know we might be in the same group because worldwide there's only 12 percent of dna for me yeah um and we're about fifty thousand bc as well so right. yeah. you know your 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 ancestors and mine could have been sat there having a cup of tea in a cave somewhere you know fifty thousand uh, years ago very possibly they might have been doing a podcast who knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um oh yeah no fascinating that I, I mean i could talk to you about that for hours but yeah. let's Let's talk about your book then. Um, okay. Right. Europe's Roswell. Uh, yeah. This is a subject that I, I know nothing about, Mark. I'll be quite honest with you. Um, I've done done a tiny little bit. There, there it goes. But yeah, tiny, just... tiny little bit of research. I must admit, not an awful lot. Um, nineteen eighty-three. Yes. Uh, Lanilar is that? Lanilar, just outside Aberystwyth. Outside Aberystwyth. Tell me what happened. Right, okay. Um, well, the story begins with uh, a newspaper article, A Strange Debris Out of the Sky. Um, let me get the date for this absolutely correct, because it's, it is in the book. So let me just have a look for the benefit of the listeners and the viewers. Hold on, here we go. Uh, this came out in the Sunday Express on the 23rd of January, 1983. Strange Debris Out of the Sky, and it was by a journalist called Andrew Chapman. Um, and a friend of mine called Gary Rowe ran the um, North Wales UFO group at that time. And he subscribed to a newspaper clipping agency who thought that this, you know, article might be of some use. So they sent it to him. Uh, and in this article, it outlines how, you know, something hit trees and scattered debris over four fields uh, on this farmer called Irwell's farm just outside the you know sleepy North Wales village of Glenilla. So Gary then, being that he's in the same area, he's North Wales, he gets on the blower to Irwell because he happened to know him and, and said, you know, well, what, what's going on? And what Irwell said was, he said he, he got up one morning, went out to look at his sheep and four of these pretty sizable Welsh fields, I mean, the fields in Wales are not small, four of these fields are covered in debris that look like big sheets of metal and tin foil. So Irwell's first reaction is, well, it looks like a plane crash. 
you know, I've had a plane crash. So he phones the police. The police say, well, we've, we've not had anything reported. They phone the local Air Force base. And about two or three hours later, the place looks like a scene from a James Bond movie. They've got all these vehicles out. They've got floodlights up. They've got metal detectors out. They're searching for these fragments um, all over the place. And some of them are quite sizable. There's big sheets there that are sort of two meters square, six foot square sheets of metal. Um, anyway, Gary phones Erwell and says, can I come down and have a look? And Erwell's like, well, you know, they spent all day clearing it. Um, I went to bed because I need to get up the next day for me sheep. Uh, and when I got up the next day, it was all gone. He said, so you're welcome to come down and have a look, but I don't think you're going to find anything. So a couple of days later, Gary turns up on Herbal's farm. They go out there, there's nothing. Fields are completely cleared. Absolutely no debris there at all. Then Gary notices that the woods next door, this wooded copse, has got this huge swathe of trees cut out in it. Like yeah. something's come down and literally smashed through the top of the trees. So Gary gets his little team together, his mates that have come with him. He says, right, we're going in the woods. You can see where to look because you can see where the damage is and we'll see what we can find. There's no way they're going to get everything out of the woods in the middle of the night. So, you know, we'll have a look. Yeah. Anyway, they, they got six pieces of metal, two pieces of what appear to be foil, and then a couple of tiny fragments um, out of this out of this wooded area. Right. Anyway, then the story rumbles on. It starts to get a bit more mysterious then. Um, Gary then says, can we come back? Erbil says, yes. He comes back. He doesn't find anything. So he's now had two visits. He decides he's going to come back for a third visit, and then he gets a phone call off Erwell, and Erwell says, there's no, no point you coming back. Gary says, why is that? He said, well, they're removing the woods. Oh, right. The, the Forestry Commission have come in with heavy-duty you know, machinery, and they're taking the woods away. So Gary phones up the local, you know, um, forestry commission and says, what, what are you playing at? The guy on the other end says, well, we're, we're taking the woods away because of wind damage. And Gary's like, well, do you normally take a whole forest away because of wind damage? And the guy on the other end, you know, Gary says he's sure he was smiling, said, no, but in this case we are. <laughs> <laughs> so that leaves Gary then with these fragments. Um do you want me to carry on? Because it's a long story. I mean, yeah, you know, no, please do. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, from a ufologist point of view, it kind of it ramps up a little bit at this point because oh. a, a couple of weeks later, uh, he gets a knock on the door, you know, and he, he goes to answer his door and he can see through the glass there's two black figures stood there. So he's ready for this. So he opens the door. Sure enough, it's two men in black, black suits you know, black hats, black glasses, you know, yeah. incomprehensible military-looking passes. Uh, Gary glances up the close, and there are two black SUVs, you know, with the windows blacked out and no number plate. And these guys basically say to Gary, they say, well, you know, can we have our material back? Can we have the fragments you've got back? Mm. And Gary's like, nope, you're a bit late, boys. And right. they're like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, what I've done is, he says, I've broken one of these pieces up into little tiny fragments. Right. I've put them into key rings. And I've handed the key rings out to everybody I know who's connected to the media. And he said, if you ever come looking for this material again or knock on my door again, I'm going to phone them all up and tell them to release the material right. to the media. Now, you've got to bear in mind this is in the 1980s as well. So, you know, this kind of stuff, this story, this kind of material is not in circulation. So these guys basically just shuffled off in silence, got into the vehicles, drove off and were never seen again. Right. But the twist, the twist in that is... They must have known that Gary had got something out of the woods. Mm. So they're clearly watching the crash site. 
and they knew where he lived. Right, of course, yeah. So you've got a kind of, you know, it gets a bit dark there, mm-hmm. gets a bit sinister. Um, well, so there the, we are. The the men in black thing obviously is um is something that that you know is a running theme, isn't it, through through these sort of cases. Um I mean I remember reading a case um uh, on the Moors or the Bolton where um the Murphy case and and there was there was uh, I think it was Steve Mira who um who investigated that and he wrote that that he was followed by as you described um yeah. you know a sort of blacked out four by four Land Rover um men inside you know with with the suits and and the dark glasses you know you typically and it, and it's funny isn't it how how when you say men in black you automatically think of of the film don't you and and you think yeah. of, you know, you think of Will Smith and, and what have you, and and they are dressed in exactly that way, aren't they? It's, yeah. it's almost as if somebody in Hollywood was either told this is how you portray them because you know we're sort of trying to to get people used to the idea that these people exist, um, or it was just a pure coincidence that they decided to to dress them in such a way um, that these people have have been dressing for all these years. Yeah, um, I, I I don't think it's a coincidence because uh, Men in Black 1, the first film, started off as a cartoon strip, yeah. you know, and people that do cartoon books, especially in the States, are known to get really edgy with the content. You know, mm. some, of the, some of the cult cartoon strip books are quite dark and they're quite deep. So I think that's where that actually originates, you know, the idea of, you know, pr- protecting the earth from the scum of the universe, you know. Yeah, it, it is funny how, how, how they just sort of pop up, though, isn't it? Um, at, at, you know, these sort of these sort of things. I mean, with, with regards to this material that he got then, was, was there ever any sort of analysis done on it, any metallurgy or anything like that, or...? or... Well, yes, there was. There's, there's, there's been three sets of tests, and we've loosely called them UK, USA, and Australia. And that's that's roughly the three sets of tests. The UK one, um, he had some friends in the aerospace industry, and he he took the pieces round. And there was a, a couple of ladies that did up aircraft. There was a couple of guys that worked in the military who looked after air, aircraft, and they looked at the material. Uh, and they said, well, British Aerospace, why don't you take it to British Aerospace to see what they say? So back in the 1980s, that's what he did, took it to British Aerospace. British Aerospace looked at it and they said, well, we've never seen anything like this. We don't know what half of the stuff is because right. it's like a, there's a green rubbery coating, there's resin and there's a metal sort of centre core, if you like. And they said, we're not, we, we can't, you know, it would cost us thousands of pounds to analyse it because it would have done back in the 1980s. Uh, and they said, but in our opinion, it's duralumin. It's a form of aluminium, oh. which has been around since airships, you know, between the First and Second World War. They've right. had this duralumin. It's it's a bit like a trade name as well. It's like McDonald's or Coca-Cola yeah. or whatever. It's it's just a trade name for about 200 different types of aluminium, oh. which, it, you know, it was kind of helpful, but kind of not helpful, if, <laughs> if, if you know where I'm coming from. So then uh, the publisher, Philip, when we came to do the book, you know, we put the whole book together. It was ready in January. And then Philip said, well, why don't we have another go? You know, why don't we ask Gary, see if he's got any samples he can send us? At which point I'm like, 
you'll be lucky if he sends you anything. You know, he's super, super, super protective of the material. Doesn't keep it at his house. Keeps it in a, you know, a lock case in a lockup. You know, safe, safely deposited yeah. away. Uh, obviously, he doesn't want to lose it. Doesn't want it taken. So anyway, Philip gets on the on the emails to to Gary. Anyway, a few days later, he gets a couple of pieces of the material in a jiffy bag through the post. So we're like, yay, we can we can do it. So we did the the new analysis. We blind sent one to Australia and blind sent another one to United States. Didn't tell either lab what we'd done. Yeah. Uh, and of course, me and Gary are like, well, hey, this will sort it out. You know, we'll find out exactly what it is. They'll tell us that, you know, that'll be it. Anyway, the first first one back was the Australian one. And what they said is, um, unfortunately, British Aerospace were wrong. It's not aluminium as in duralumin. It's aluminium foam, which is what they do nowadays. They mix um, uh, uh, two materials together, one of them being aluminium, and it foams, and then it goes hard at room temperature. Okay. So you end up with a metal that is super strong, super hard, but doesn't weigh anything. Right, very, very light because of the, the air in it. But that's because air bubbles and... Yeah, it gives it that kind of light like quality. Like an bar sort of thing, really. Yeah, but in, in miniature. And, and the, uh, British Aerospace had already said the green paint on this stuff was non-aerodynamic, um, and they hadn't managed to identify the glue, but the Australians voiced the opinion that this was an American type of glue, so it, that made it look like it was one of ours. Right. About five days later, we get through the American analysis, and we opened that up, and basically, the first thing it says on the first page is material, unknown. Okay. So we're like, oh, okay. And they go on to describe a completely different material. So it looks like we'd assume that all the crash debris was the same stuff, mm. but it's not. There are two different things. There's the aluminium stuff. Mm. And the stuff that came back from the States is lanthium. Lanthanum, which right. is an exotic type of rare earth metal. Mm. Um, it's incredibly difficult to get out. It's it's extremely expensive. You, you're talking tens of thousands of, of dollars to get this extracted and do something with it. Mm. But what's important is this is a material with all this weird green rubbery hexagons all over it. Yeah. Um, and there were sheets of this stuff that were, as I said earlier, six foot, two meters square. Right. And this material's phenomenally expensive. Now, it's not rare. It's everywhere. It's the 27th most common material on the planet. You know, it's mm. in everything from mud to you name it. But at the, at the end of the day, it's also in the upper atmosphere. It's in stars. It's in galaxies. It's mm. in comets. It's in meteorites. You know, it, it's all over the place. So that then sort of put the cat among the pigeons. And the most important thing is that the Americans didn't identify the adhesive. Right. So so it's clearly not an American adhesive, because that would have been the first thing they would have yeah. got, you know. Yeah, they said, yeah, we know what it is, because we produce it. Exactly. It's one of the, so, so now it's beginning to sound like it. it's not one of ours, it's one of theirs. However... There's somewhere in the middle. We've got three alternatives. I, I in, in the book, I just briefly mentioned these, but we've now come down on one of three alternatives. Either it's a man-made piece of super technology, hmm. in which case, where did it come from? And what the hell was it doing flying around in 1983? They didn't have aluminium foam back then. You know, lanthium was unheard of. This is this is super, super technology. But it could be, it could be an American, uh, you know, an American experimental vehicle of some kind, or you know, something that that crashed. Mm. Then you got the other extreme. You could say, okay, 
Uh, it's alien. It's an alien thing because the aliens have only got the same basic materials to work with in the galaxy that we have. Yeah. Everything's made of the same elements. Yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the thing that makes it alien is what you do with it. Mm. And the lanthium certainly came as a complete shock because nobody's come up with that before this set of analysis. But then that's your second option. Your third option, and I sort of lean a bit in this direction, is something came down at Roswell in 1947 something crashed in roswell new mexico and it's possible that what we're looking at is back engineered technology so in fact it is alien technology but it's actually us doing the alien thing you know we've developed it and we're using it which then would quite neatly explain how it was you know flying around in the late 70s early 80s um, because they would have had time then to do something with it and mess with it and develop it. Yeah. But um, what we thought was going to be a nice, clear, easy, you know, this is going to nail this one. It's just made the rabbit hole go deeper. It's just, yeah, it's you just know. completely muddied the waters, hasn't it, really? Because you've now, totally. yeah, you've now got three three hypotheses and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is the most likely. Um, I mean, I think that back engineering idea is, 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 interesting yeah. I really do. and i think it's i think it's feasible that um that there was obviously something crashed at roswell and the, and, and the american air force did did look at what had come down what they had back engineered a lot of the materials um even maybe some of the the, the propulsion system that yeah you know that they're now looking at to 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 possibly power um, vehicles, you know, in in space exploration, but um, I mean, I don't know. Do you do you sort of think it's more likely that one that 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 hypothesis? Well, be, being an archaeologist and knowing a bit about what went on in the first and second world war, the first world war, I get the duralumin thing, I get the what they were doing with airships and that. Yeah. So the aluminium thing, I don't have any problem with that. That that's fairly straightforward. Mm. However. The Roswell thing, you've got to start looking towards Operation Paperclip and things like that, where they brought all of the German technology and the German science and yeah. all those developments, rockets, you name it. Oh. And and they split them up across several continents. The Russians got some, Chinese yeah. got some, Americans got some. Oh. So looking at where 1947, where the Roswell crash sits, is in that, you know, post-Operation Paperclip bracket. So... It could be, it could be that the Germans were developing stuff like this and working with things like this. Um, but the real sort of kicker is the lanthium. You know, that's not something that you just stumble across by accident. You know, uh, geologically speaking, there's aluminium out there. You can find aluminium, you know, and, and there are ancient archaeological remains where it shows that people have been messing with aluminium in the past. Right. But lanthium's a big no-no. You know, it's it's nowhere. It just doesn't appear anywhere. It's not, it's not, I've not seen it in any of the German technology records. I've not seen it in any of the American technology records. Uh, we've approached, we've even approached experts recently. This is post uh, doing the book. We've approached experts in, in the military aeronautical side of things. Um, and they've come back and described stuff that looks very similar to what we've got, but no lanthium. So you've got this, Huge question mark over, okay, they're mucking about with this, but not necessarily giving away what's going on in terms of the chemistry and the, and the weird metals and strangeness that's in there. Um, and then you've got a question, well, what does it do? 
Um, we because when they attempted in America to photograph this piece of lanthium, oh. it pushed back. When they started using microscopic photography on on the metalwork, oh. all they got was interference. The image was breaking up. So the metal clearly has a quality about it. Mm. There's something going on in there beyond it just being, you know, a, a lump of earth, a lump of metal um, from the planet. There's something else still going on inside it. Um, the photograph of that does appear in the book. You can see how it's, you know, it's broken up. It, it's, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of it. Um, so they're up to something and it does something. So it's it it's almost like then it's it's scattering the um uh not protons um what whatever's being used to scan yeah. it's 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 reflecting it back so to me that would suggest maybe some sort of um uh mechanism whereby it hides itself almost like a sort of yeah. clocking um device if you want to go down the old the old stuff. Yeah. Um, so well, what we what we did was we can we considered it sort of from that point of view. You know, do they flick a big switch and it just and it vanishes? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, and th there was another side to it as well, and that was maybe it's designed to operate under pressure at high speed mm. in certain dimensions at certain frequencies. You know, it's designed to operate, yeah. and when for some reason it slowed down and it got battered by trees. That slow, low density impact broke it up like eggshell. It shattered yeah. it. So there's something about the design of it that's really quite exotic. The mm. cutting through the trees was about 20, 25 foot wide. So that's too big, really, for a drone. Mm. It's about the right size for a small stealth vehicle of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they'd have had to develop that in the late 1970s in order to get it up in the air and have it flying oh. by January 1983. You know, um, they've only had a couple of years in the 80s there to actually fly this thing. Um, so I'm not aware of anything in that period that's like well, it. So when when did the Americans um, start flying the, the 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 well they called it the flying wing, didn't they? The the the, the, the stealth bomber. They were developing that as a concept. I think it was Skunk Works that were doing it in the United States. I think they were developing it in the 1950s. Right, okay. So based on the German technology, but it, it is older. Mm. Um, but they've not come forward and said anything. We've put, we've put disclosure requests in, freedom of information requests, and so far we've just drawn a blank. You know, nobody's talking. Mm. Um, and the few people we know who might know are not talking either. You know, they're just all playing ignorant of, of what this material is. Um, fascinating stuff, though. It really is. Because oh, uh, Absolutely. So this, uh, let's let's just go back to the crash site then, because you mentioned, obviously, mm. that, that, that there's this huge swathe of, of trees that have been flattened 20, 25 mm. feet wide. How long was that? How, how you know, it, I mean, have you been able to work out how fast it was going? That's That's what I'm getting at. Um, the general opinion is that it was going slow. Right. The reason the reason for it going slow is um, well, it's quite miraculous, really, because it hit the trees. Oh. It cut this swathe. It then uh, either exploded or imploded or, or shattered, covered the four fields. Oh. And what everybody couldn't understand, no one could understand this at the time, is that the bulk of it was still able to fly off. 
Yeah. There were no engines, no cockpit, no pilots, no structure. I mean, four fields, to cover four fields, that's like pretty much the whole of the outside shell of this thing's gone. Mm. But it was still able to depart without leaving any yeah. any remains, you know. Um, there's a couple of other bits of a twist as well while we're looking at that, that period. Wow. We contacted the guy who wrote the article, Andrew Chapman, because we thought, okay, where did he get his story from? So we did this back in 2008. We contacted him. He, at that time, he was still working for the Sunday Express. He said, hang on a minute, lads, I'll go and have a look. I'll have a look in my notebooks. So he toodles off back to his notebooks. Couldn't find where the story had come from. It just appeared from nowhere. So he said, uh, somebody must have come around the office, you know, after the New Year's break mm. and just handed it out to be written up. Right. But the thing is, it only appears once. In that one article in the Sunday Express, which is exactly what happened at Roswell, because you only had the Roswell Daily Record that reported it on the day and the day after. That was all we had. Um, and the parallels, uh, Gary picked up on this, actually, when we were doing the documentary. He said, it's the same. It's the same playbook. You know, something crashes in the desert. Mm. One farmer comes out, finds the debris, debris cleared up, disappears to an Air Force base. That's it. We don't hear anything else. Uh, it's rumoured that Matt Brazel, the farmer, got, you know, a few of the fragments, which he put in a case and hid. Nobody's ever been able to find that, you know. And you've got exactly the same thing in Wales. You've got one farmer, one cleanup operation, disappears, all vanishes off to an Air Force base. Only one newspaper article, you know, a case full of debris. The, the parallels are just... Unbelievable. Uh, Gary did some notes. I've put them in the book, these these notes that he did, and he's managed to cover about three or four pages of things that are basically the same. So I strongly suspect somewhere in a military department, they've got a book on the shelf, you know, in the event of a UFO crash, this is what you do. <laughs> yeah, you know? <laughs> almost like a, like a UFOs for dummies. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Playbook, military playbook. They'll have it somewhere. Uh, I mean, it is a bit similar to things like Rendlesham and that, but but honestly, the closest parallel is Roswell. Yeah, you know, I heard a, um, an interesting story actually about Rendlesham um, from uh, a friend of mine who lives down in Suffolk, um, and he'd been speaking to, uh, and you know who you are, Chris. Um, <laughs> um, I'm actually off down to Suffolk next week. I'm going. I'm going to go and visit Rendlesham. Actually, the first time, first time I've been down there. Um, but he spoke to a local guy who reckoned that it was an SAS um, operation that caught the Americans out. They were testing the, the base at Rendlesham, um, and th this is a big cover-up because the Americans wanted to save face. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they'd been caught out. The SAS had caught up with the pants down, um, and uh, they didn't want to admit that, you know, they weren't secure enough. And mm. these SAS guys had, had gone in, done what, what they wanted to do to show they'd been there and got out again without being seen. Um, and so it was a bit of a cover up by the by the American Air Force Base. Which I think it's an interesting well, thing, but who knows? Uh, I mean, it's, re it's really clever because, I mean, the accusation was that these UFOs that were flying over switched off mm. all the atomic things that were stored there, you know, the nuclear things that were stored there, just yeah. turn them all off. Well, yeah, it could be the SAS. Hats <laughs> off to them if they did that. You know, Absolutely. wow. Could be, yeah, yeah. Um, could have been James Bond, who knows? Could have been Ian Fleming, who knows? <laughs> um, well, the funny thing was when these guys came to clean up all the debris in Wales, uh, one of the things that the farmer said was, he said, well, you know, you've got like police officers, you know, and some of them are in real big 
high-flying uniforms. He said, then you've got, like, the RAF guys running around in the green, you know, and they've got some fairly, you know, stripes and yeah. big badges and that. Yeah. And then he said, but they were all being ordered around by these guys in black suits. Mm. He said that, you know, they were there, suited yeah. and yeah. booted and ordering them around. So there's a lot of stuff goes on we don't know about, clearly. There's there's obviously, um, the, there's a government department somewhere, isn't there, that's... Um... Yeah. That's that's in that's uh, very much involved in this. Is is that particular area? Were, have there been sightings previously, or have there been sightings since? Is it an area where where you get a lot of UFO sightings? Well, the short answer is yes. I mean, that is a brilliant question because I, I was I, I did a talk on it, and I was approached by a lady who used to be a, an art student, and she was based in Aberystwyth, which is just up to the coast. Yeah. And she said she opened the curtains one morning and saw something coming up out of Cardigan Bay. Oh, right. one, of, one of these underwater things, the, the right. UAPs, as they call them now, coming up out the ocean. And yeah. she said she had a camera. She grabbed the camera, photographed it. And I'm like, oh, please, please send me a copy of the photo. She never did. Right. But that was the tip of the iceberg. Once I started talking to Gary, Gary's like, well, yeah, they see them all the time. The local Coast Guard has even got the phone number for the local Air Force base. And when right. they see them coming up, they just phone the Air Force base. Um, there's stuff whizzing up and down the valleys, you know, all the time. It's it's like the North Wales Triangle. Yeah. Um, he's he's had some fairly close encounters with flying craft in that area. Uh, you've got, I dread to say, everyone gets this mixed up. The Berwyn Mountain incident, that is, Berwyn Mountains are in that triangle, you know. Um, the things I saw, you know, back in the 1970s, 1980s, going down the Mersey Valley and the things have been seen over Liverpool and again, going out into towards the ocean, you know, uh, we're the top edge of the triangle. Then you sort of go down to Aberystwyth and that uh, and back up the coast and you pretty much covered Snowdonia and the valleys um, and stuff's being seen all the time. You've got the Denby lights, you know, that's yeah. a, another book that's out. Mm. Uh, there's, there's account after account after account coming in. Um, the famous flying triangles, we had those as well. Um, they've been all over Wales. Uh, it turns out, though, I think that the military have admitted they are stealth uh, drones, triangles with three lights. Uh, we had them zipping over Winter Hill up here in the 1990s. Yeah. And that was that was funny because you had loads of reports coming in, you know, um, flying saucers seen over Winter Hill. And finally, they admitted they were flying these drones out of Manchester Airport. All right. OK, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's. Yeah. That's not. Too, I mean, obviously, I'm in. I'm in North Lancashire, so it's not not yeah. too not too far away from me. Oh, no. I mean, Morecambe Bay's an area that that have, that's had a lot of um, triangular UFO sightings over the years, but some of them are going back pre-war, which I think is interesting. So, uh, pre war yeah. some of them. So, you know, some of the reports in the in the local papers in in the sort of Morecambe and Lancaster papers are going back to sort of turn of of the the um 20th century 19th century into 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 the 20th century so um the... yeah there's a, there's, there's a friend of mine actually gave me a copy of a photograph which i'm desperately trying to find um and it's it's uh edwardian 1910 mm -hmm. 1920 yeah. and you can see it is because you can see the buildings you can see the trucks on it and this yeah. bridge there's a mexican hat style ufo sat right in the middle of it yeah, and it's it's not a mark on the photo. It's on it's on the negative. It's there, you know. See it, yeah. Um, but that's well, over a hundred years ago. Yeah, which <laughs> which is I I mean some of these reports are predating actual flight. Yeah. You know, um, predating the Wright brothers. Um, yeah. 
or or you know the, the first world war which was obviously when um you know technology really galloped ahead because if, if there's anything mm. that, that makes technology gallop ahead it's a, it's a good war um but obviously you know pre pre first world war we, we were messing about with balloons and and that was about it but you know there there have been reports all over the place these triangular ufos um prior to the first world war which i think's amazing really well it, it it does make you wonder if anything the military says is trustworthy you know if if they did know what they were they yep. really were as old as that um then it's clearly not a drone and it's not one of theirs so you have you have to take what they say you know with a with yeah. a pinch of salt there is a darker side to ufo's i guess and to uaps and uh, there's a conference actually bolton town hall on the 17th of february it's called the awakening yeah. and it's called the darker side of ufology so um if anyone's watching this they want to get along to that i'm on stage there's loads of other fantastic speakers up there um go and hunt it out uh, okay. and that's the kind of that, that's the kind of thing we're looking at yeah yeah are there any tickets left that, that you know of? i would i would hope so there might be one or two you you know you're talking yeah. it'd be sold out mark if you were if you were well Headline. It's it's Steve Mira's <laughs> on as well. Steve's there, oh, yeah. and, and yes. loads of the other the others that you'll know. So I, yeah, I, remember... I mean, if 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 the tickets haven't sold, if they have sold out, I'm sure they could get some extra chairs in. You yeah, know yeah, what I mean? So... Yeah, Steve. Um, Steve's a guy that I, I keep meaning to try and contact actually because he's he's you know he's a sort of local local lad like like you are as well. Mm. Um, I would imagine he's got some really interesting stories to talk about as well. I, I keep meaning to try and get hold of him. So um, when, when you see him at, at the conference, just mention me and say you might be getting an email from some some yeah. old Craig Bryant who's asking to yeah. do a podcast. He's, just go along with him. He's all right. You know, he's 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 a bit dis disorganised, but he's all right. Well, you well, as, as, a, as a kind of a hot tip, I mean, we, we get tons and tons of requests all the time from the States. Yeah. We get a couple from like Australia and Canada occasionally. We get very few requests for interviews, you know, from the UK. All right. Very few. So I'm sure Steve would do one. I'm positive yeah, yeah. he would. I'm yeah. Sorry. I'm surprised. But no, it's... Uh, it's it's a big talk, topic, isn't it, in America? Yeah. They're, they're really into it, aren't they? You mentioned can um, can we just just tell me about this <laughs> Berwin Mountain incident? Yeah, it's it's the one that everyone goes to. It's like the go-to incident, but where this one that I'm investigating that I've written up is 1983 Berwin Mountain. I think I'm right in saying it was 1974, right. so it's it's a lot older than that. Right. Um, I've done a lot of research into that, and in the same way as a lot of things like possibly Rendlesham can be explained away, there's been some quite strong, valid statements made to explain Berwyn away. Right. Um, so it depends which side you take. Yeah. You know, the, the local villagers saw all these lights up on, on, on a hillside and it turned into a UFO incident, you know, helicopters and blue flashing lights and all that. Uh, there's another alternative version. It was some hikers that were lost up there and oh, the lights right. the lights were the people searching for them and there were some booms and bangs and flashes and but but you know, all all these things are just all connected mm. to create an incident. Um other than that, there was there's no evidence on the ground, you know, and it's difficult to find anyone that was actually up on the mountain. They're harder to find. Um, and yeah. some of the emergency services has come, have come out and gone, yeah, that's one of ours. You know, yeah, we had an ambulance up there or a fire engine and, a, you know, we had a helicopter and that. Uh, it just annoys me that if it's in Wales, if it's in North Wales, everyone just pushes it all together. Yeah. You know, and there are different incidents. There are quite distinctly different ones. 
Well, I'd I'd never heard of this um, this triangle um, that that you mentioned the this sort of um, North Wales triangle. North Wales triangle. Yeah, it's yeah. something that, that I know. I mean, how far how far up does it extend? You, you you said it goes up to sort of Merseyside. Well, yeah, the north side of it, if you like, if you imagine a triangle sort of, you know, on, on its yeah, yeah. side, yeah. Uh, the sort of the, the T bar, if you like, the top bar is, is, is the river Mersey. Right. Um, and things that are whizzing around Wales tend to impact on the Wirral and they tend to impact on Liverpool as well. Um, I mean, the one I saw uh, was quite famous. I mean, I've seen little lights and stars and other bits and bobs, but yeah. the one I saw was uh, a Jenny Randall's write-up in a Mysteries of the Mid-Mersey Valley or Mysteries of the Mersey Valley. Um, and it had this flying saucer that somebody saw hovering over the Wirral. Uh, and it was spotted by an aeroplane. And then it moved off and it was spotted by some campers. And then it shot a bit further and went through the steam on on the uh, Fiddler's Ferry power station up here, okay. uh, which is, which is a major feat in itself because that's coming out at like forty odd plus degrees. Anyway, it shot through that, and what I saw was it coming out the other side. So it came through the steam, and it looked like right. the scout ship out of Close Encounters, you know, with lights. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of changing colour, you know, mostly white, but with reds and blues. Mm. Uh, and it moved slowly up the Mersey Valley, got sort of level with Warrington with the light pollution that I could see. Um, and then all the lights went off and it just shot off into the sky. Looked to be about the size of a small truck. Uh, but it took a long time to piece all that together. The full account of that is is in, in the book Europe's Roswell. Um, but it took 11 years to find out that anybody else had actually seen that. Right. And then it, it took about 30 odd years, I think it's 34 years to string all of the accounts together in detail. Yeah. Um, so, and it's it's down to Philip Mantle again. Yeah. Down well, to, was, you know. it, was it um, was it observed then by quite a few different people that, as, as well as you could say? Well, yeah, the first observers were pilots in an aircraft coming into Liverpool aircraft, uh, Liverpool Airport. They they right. came over an industrial estate. They looked down and saw a big. They described it as like an opaque light bulb, All like right. a circle below them. So so they uh, they were above it then, were they? They were above it. Yeah, they were looking right. down on it. So there's this circular thing, and then the campers were on um, one of the hills in Wirral, camping on one of the the moorland hills. They could see this thing side on. So they saw basically what I saw. They, they saw this light bulb suddenly turn into this thing with lights on it. And that came shooting over them, heading, you know, towards uh, towards the power station. Uh, the, I believe there were some witnesses around um, oh, the, the lighthouse. At, um, it's gone out of my head. Anyway, there's a lighthouse that that people go visiting on the Mersey. There were some people there, and that's where it's depicted on the cover of Jenny Randall's book. Yeah. It's shown as this flying saucer with a light coming down with with the lighthouse. Um, Hale, it's a lighthouse at Hale. Right. Um, and when I've plotted it, when I've actually plotted where these witnesses are and what they saw, it's a 14-mile straight line running west to east. Um, so you can see it. You see what it's doing. And it just followed the valley, followed the north bank of the River Mersey and came up to Warrington and then vanished. Um, But it took so long to piece it together that if there were any other witnesses out there, I mean, I'd be glad to hear from them, but you're taxing people's memories a bit. You know, I remembered it because I wrote it in my diary. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the whole of that West Coast then, so so from from mid-Wales, which is obviously Aberystwyth. Yeah. Cardigan Bay, isn't it? Going yeah, all, yeah. all the way up around 
North Wales, up to um, Merseyside, up past uh, the Fylde Coast, so Blackpool. Uh, well, now now you've gone into what I would call the next triangle. Next triangle. There's yeah, yeah, there's some there's something else going on over Lancashire, but yeah. Lancashire seems to be different in some ways. Um, the flying triangles, for example, you've had those in Lancashire, mm. um, and, but you've still had things coming up out the ocean. Yeah. Whereas in the North Wales Triangle, you tend to get proper traditional UFOs. You get lights, you get circular things, you get things that look like the scout ships out of, yeah. you know, sci-fi movies and that. But then if you go down to South Wales, if you drop out of that triangle, go all the way down to Cardiff, um, they've had the flying triangles. Mm. So it's it's like, you know, different different sightings predominate in, in different areas, you know. And of course, over, over where I am, where I'm speaking to you from now, where I've, I've got Pendle Hill, just look out my window and I can see Pendle yeah. Hill we've had ufo sightings which are again more like your sort of typical circular ufo type saucer shapes lights all that sort of stuff as opposed to the to the triangular ufos so yeah so yeah it's like it's like areas isn't it specific areas yeah. that, that, that you get in specific types of, of sightings Wow. <laughs> somebody needs to plot them all, don't they? Somebody somebody who really, really knows their onions. Yeah. Beyond you and I, you know, somebody who's who's been doing this for a long time and has a lot of sightings to go at. It would be fantastic if they did a sort of UFO map of Britain. Yeah. Um, because I you know, I've spoken to people from Derbyshire and then you go a bit further, like you say, over in Yorkshire. Uh they get things again that are slightly different. You know, they get different shapes, they get uh, you know, different circumstances. I mean, the famous Yorkshire one is the couple of policemen chasing one down a road, you know. Mm. Um, that's the famous incident over there. So it'd be nice to bring them all together and kind of, you know, see if there is some kind of patterns to it. And then maybe go a step further and plot where the the military bases are, you know, see how they relate to what we're seeing, you know, Um might be a bit harder that though, because you you know you're kind of treading on their toes there to look at, well, you know. Yeah, but I mean, I mean that that is interesting because um, I mean over in in Yorkshire, um, Harrogate way, you've got Menwith Hill, um, yeah, which I I did actually look at a map a while ago when I was when I was writing my first book and doing doing a bit of research and and looking at UFOs over over Pendle Hill, um, and looking in particular at, at Layer lines, believe it or not. Um, well, yeah. And I actually, actually plotted. A, I, I found a plot of a layer line which went sort of west to east or east to west, whichever whichever way you're looking at it. But it went through Pendle Hill. It went through Menwith Hill, um, the airbase there, and it it intersected the northeast coast up around the Whitby area, which of course isn't a million miles away from where uh, Paul Sinclair does a lot of you know does all yeah. The, yeah, Paul's up that way. Uh, Paul's getting some amazing things happening. Uh, I was speaking to him not not so long ago, and uh, yeah, he's 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 seeing some great things up there. So it does not... it, it kind of makes you wonder if the Earth energy thing is something to yeah. do with propulsion. Yeah, of course. You know? absolutely. Yeah, the being yeah the being drawn into these areas of of maybe electromagnetism or something to do with the geology of the land or or something like that. You know. Yeah. So it is, it is <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, okay, so the book is uh available on Amazon. 
It is. Uh, do you want me to do the advert? Because everybody always wants to know where I am and what I'm up to. So uh, let's get the advert out of the way. Uh, it's it's dead easy, this. I, I'm, I'm a, a, a very simple person when it comes to media and stuff like that. I hate doing things complicated. All the books that I've ever released and any DVDs that might still survive out there, because there'll be secondhand copies, everything is on Amazon. Right. So, so literally just go and find it pay for it click you know a couple of days later it comes whizzing through your door it's it's all out there on amazon so e even the older books that i did in the 1990s you can still get them they're still available everything's on amazon just type my name in you know hopefully they'll all come up yeah. uh, if anybody wants to see what i've done production wise uh go onto youtube there's a company called drake michigan um, and they've put everything up for me in the last 12 months. So all Lost Treasures are up there, all 22 episodes. There's at least six documentaries plus extras, um, just everything, all the back catalogue, all the documentaries I've produced right up to 2019. Everything's out there. So you'll find it just if it doesn't come up immediately, persevere, but it's out there. Um, and then if anyone wants to contact me, it's Facebook. I hate to say it, but it is. Um, come and find me, send me a friend request, as long as your name's not Fifi Trixabel with a butterfly and a rainbow, you know, and dozens of fake photos, you know, in which case you've had it, I'm not going to friend you. Um, as long as you're a real person, uh, I'll friend you, or just talk to me on Messenger. Yeah. You know, you can get me on Messenger. Uh, and then if you want to book me or anything like that, you know, we can, we can take it a step further and uh, I'll send you the details for that. Uh, but that's where I am, dead easy. So it's either uh, Amazon, YouTube, or Facebook. There we go. Excellent. That's brilliant. Have you got anything in the pipeline? Any plans for the future? Um, well, well, yeah, I suppose so. Um, I have leaked the fact that I have been working on a couple of books um, to come out next. One of them is something that's frustrated me for years. Um, and it, I'm, I'm kind of working towards a book of magic, oh. but magic that works. You know, like you open your eyes first thing in the morning and it's like, OK, what do I do now? Mm. Well, you're not going to go, you know, dressing up in robes and casting big fancy circles and, you know, sacrificing a squirrel. You know, you're not going to be doing all this thing when you get up in the morning. Yeah. It's it's what what do you do to make life magical, mm. you know, that has deep spiritual meaning and can actually work? Because I'm a very, you know, you probably gathered I'm a shoot. It's a duck man. You know what I mean? It's got to be working working or, or not so yeah. that goes all the way back to stuff that i learned way back in the 1970s and that um, and then when i did the king arthur book the polychronicon of merlin joseph and arthur that took 45 years to get that into print okay it was it, it's a, the best book i've ever written it's the best book in hardback that philip's ever published and that's in his own words incredible book so if you're into king arthur go find that the next one the next one, which I started the following year, because I started that one in 1977. 1978, it's got a working title, The Keys to the Temple, because what I wanted to do was deconstruct all the biblical nonsense that's mm. out there, all the claptrap, yeah. try and find out what extra material does exist, include that, and then see how that impacted on people like the Chaldees, the early Celtic holy men, uh, you know, the Knights Templar, the Crusaders, the Crusading Orders, and the Gnostics, and, and how that's pushed everything to where we are now. But that's a huge book, enormous book. Mm. Um, I've done three books in the last 18 months, which is ridiculous, because I normally do about one every two or three years. Uh, so it might might be a while before I get those two out, but but they're, <laughs> they're in progress, shall we say. They're, they're in production. 
Uh, then I got the conference, you know, I'm back out on tour again, August to December. I'll be doing groups all over the place. I'll advertise that on, on Facebook and I'm doing uh, a gig called the Summer of Wolf uh, in July. I think it's on the 12th of July at the Tower Brewery um, in Burton-on-Trent. And that's with me rock band. You know, we're going to have a party. Let's have a summer party. What's the, what's the name of your rock band? Wolf. Okay. W-O-L-F, Wolf. Right. That's uh, a simple. <laughs> that's why it's called Summer of Wolf. Because we, we, uh, every now and again we get together, we just get loads of musicians on stage. We have a laugh. You know, we're yeah. old school. Uh, it was the high school band that I joined in 1976. So we've been playing over 40 years now, so uh, on you, and off. Do you do your own stuff or, or do you do covers? Both. We, we do a mixture, yeah. But if people have seen us before, you know, which quite a few people will have done, we yeah. change the set list right. every time. So we're working on new material for this one now. We've got a rehearsal coming up in Feb for it. Excellent. Uh, so there's a lot happening. There's a lot coming up, you know. Yeah. Uh, Stop, I, I, know... I, I was going to say when uh, when when your next book set, when your next book comes out, we'll have to mm. uh, we'll have to have another chat. Well, you could do some of the ones I've already done. I mean, you've got the Arthur one, so we could do a night on Arthur. Yeah. And then there's one called Crystal Skulls and Human Heads. Okay. So you could do that. It's all about DNA genetics and, and extinct races of humans. Okay. Uh, there's one called The Green Man. So you could do oh, The Green Man. Uh, Life and Times of the Real Robin Hood. You probably got quite a bit of Robin Hood stuff in your neck of the woods because he came across, he came over to uh, Lancashire quite a bit. Uh, and then The Disappearing Ninth Legion, which is all about that legion that, marched off never to be seen again who incidentally might have been wiped out by the brigantes in the pennines on the lancashire side all oh, right okay so so go and have a nosy go and see what subjects are out there on you know by way of books and Absolutely. Uh, i'll go and have a look at your books i'll make a list of what i want yeah. to talk to you about and i'll, I'll drop you an email <laughs> yeah uh, please we'll, do we'll definitely do this yeah. again because it's been you've been mm. probably one of my best guests i've ever spoken to mark i've really enjoyed <laughs> talking to oh you. thank you i'm glad we got here in the end i knew we, we'd get here. yeah we did for, yeah. for, for those for those people <laughs> who are watching and listening who don't know it's a Wednesday evening. I was convinced it was tomorrow <laughs> evening we were doing this. Mark had come onto the Zoom meeting and been sat here for 20 minutes waiting for me to turn up. And I hastily legged it upstairs when I realised, turned everything on and and spent about yeah. 10 minutes apologising profusely for keeping... Well, well I, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a rum and, a rum and chocolate and you're on a, on a, a tall whiskey. So I, that, I that explains a... it all. <laughs> Because I did have, I've had a rubbish day and uh, I did have a big whiskey before I came upstairs. So, uh, but it's uh, all it's done is lubricated the old brain cells. And I think it's been, uh, it's been a fantastic interview. I've really enjoyed it, Mike. Thank you very much. Good luck with everything you've got coming up, especially. Um, I will do my best to try and try and see if I can get down to Bolton to, to the, yeah. uh, to the awakening uh, conference. Bolton that, Town Hall, 17th of February. And the tickets are not that expensive. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I'll I'll pop into uh, is it the old man and scythe, the oldest the oldest pub in oh yeah. In, in yeah. is it in the, the one in Bolton? Is it yeah thirteen something I seem to remember. Yeah, it's medieval. Yeah, it's medieval. So it's, uh, that that's a place that I've been wanting to visit. So so yeah, so yeah, good luck with everything. Uh, and we will definitely uh we will definitely get in contact and have another uh, another chat about uh, some of your books. Excellent. All Thank right. you. Thanks, Mark. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You can visit my website at www.craigbryant.co.uk. Paranormal Pendle will return, and remember to keep watching the shadows. <laughs>